Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, back in May, our next guest said the odds for a China trade deal are optimistically at 10%. Let's see if those odds have changed in the succeeding months. Mike McDonough, Chief Economist for Financial Products at Bloomberg, joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. So, Mike, we've had a lot of rhetoric back and forth in the interim. Has your outlook changed at all for a trade deal? I guess it depends on how you define a trade deal, right? <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, a comprehensive trade deal, I think optimistically 10% still seems about right. But if we're going to use war terminology, I, I think that we may be about to see a ceasefire. Uh, I think that both sides have realized they have a lot to lose in the interim. If this continues to escalate, uh, they realize they will not quickly be able to solve these problems. And I think both sides are... are, are, are willing finally to, to compromise, but not, not to, let's say, have a deal, but to agree to stop the escalation. So what does that look like in terms of how they both save face and don't just say, this is dumb, we're just laying down our weapons for now and figuring this out after the 2020 elections? No, so I think <laughs> what's going to happen is that you will see um, China agree to buy more agricultural products, uh, the magnitude of which will be determined by how much the U.S. negotiators are willing to give up. Uh, and you'll also see some uh, movement, uh, some nascent uh, advancements on the intellectual property side in China. Uh, there's, there's, there's been some, some things going on behind the scenes. I think that, 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 that will come into play at some point. And I think on the U.S. side, uh, a baseline scenario in my mind would be they will agree. To, they, I don't think they'll remove tariffs. Uh, I think that that, that seems uh, like a, a hefty ask. But I think that the new round of tariffs due to come online in October uh, won't be put on. And I think that that'll be what they give up. I think if there is any removal of tariffs, you will probably see, uh, you could see China agree to uh, purchase more agricultural products. Uh, but I think that's what a ceasefire looks like. And I think that um, it won't be said, but I think both sides are kind of saying maybe we should wait until after the 2020 election and see what happens and then do the heavy lifting at that point. Even to get this ceasefire type of deal, even that seems, one could argue, optimistic, given that we haven't seen either side really show any you know, softness on, on their either negotiating side. What gives you a sense that well, they could I have mean, something? You know, the tweets and everything, that's all kind of a bit of noise. We don't really know what's going on behind the scenes or, or where things stand. Uh, you know, the rhetoric is inverse to how markets are performing generally. Uh, I think what you're seeing is if you're President Trump and you want to get reelected in 2020, you're realizing, okay, escalating this trade war is having a detrimental impact on markets. It's having a detrimental impact on the economy uh, and markets. Uh, and this isn't good for me, right? You know, if you're an incumbent president and the economy is doing poorly, that's a uh, death knell for your reelection chances. Uh, so there, there's some impetus there. Uh, and I think in China, the economy there is getting hit a bit harder than the government may have anticipated. Uh, so I think that, you know, for them, uh, it would be good to kind of... Um, 
at least stop the escalation. I think, you know, if you look at what has been put in place so far, I think both sides think, okay, well, as long as this isn't escalating, we bring some certainty for the foreseeable future uh, back into markets and businesses. Uh, This is good for both of us. Is the feeling among the officials who you speak with that the U.S. has actually weathered this fairly well and that China has had a much harder time? Um... You know, you have to figure out in China's case how much of the weakening economy is due to the trade war versus how much is due to domestic factors. There's a bit of both there. They've been going through this deleveraging cycle, uh, which is a bit challenging. Deleveraging? Uh, Excuse me. What happened to that? Is that that's not happening anymore? That's kind of it's kind of been put on hold. But I think the slowdown was originally caused by that. Got it. Um, And they they are gradually putting reversing some of that putting in some stimulus they haven't pulled out all the all the weapons yet out of their arsenal that they could use uh, but you know there, there's definitely some meaningful slowdown there and it's also that the sentiment impact doesn't fully get appreciated it's the uncertainty of what happens next so if you remove that if you kind of know what happens next and it's the status quo at least for a while uh, that should help calm things down and, and, and help bolster confidence a bit so Mike in terms of you know this you know agreement light if you will or trade agreement light so what is the timing of that because it seems like October 1st when these tariffs go into effect i believe um, or sometime in October that's when it's going to become really hit the pocketbook uh, and the wallet of general usa consumer yeah i think it i think as a courtesy to china for the 70th anniversary the 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 start date was pushed back to the 15th and that also tells me by pushing that back maybe there was something going on in the background that we weren't privy to uh that is a positive sign uh so i think it happens before then i think i you know i i I think a ceasefire is a good word for it Uh, and i think we see it soon I'm trying to understand what that does to the other aspects of the trade discussion in terms of intellectual property, uh, in terms of just a sort of enforcement mechanism of some of the uh, the ideas as far as fair trade practices. Will people just sort of say, you know what, this is good for now, we won't think about those things, or will there be a lot of pressure saying, Trump, what happened to that? Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure no matter what happens, it will be celebrated as a win. <laughs> And, you know, the fact that, you know, China will continue uh, or these China's not paying the tariffs, but these tariffs will remain in place as a as a kind of punitive measure uh, until the negotiations are complete. I think that that it's going to be looked at as might not even be called a ceasefire. It's going to be maybe referred to as a step in the right direction. Negotiations are continuing. China's continuing. But how about I mean, is this how about the old trade, you know, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Pact? I mean. Is it going to be better than that? That's kind of the standard, right? Oh, the 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 the, the trans the TPP hasn't I haven't heard that in a while. I mean, no, the TPP was very different actually because um, China was not a member of the TPP. I used to say that there were two groups of people who really didn't want to see the TPP initiated, and it was China and Trump supporters. <laughs> right. I, I used to kind of ask for a rationalization of that. The TPP was more of a it was a trade deal, but it was more of a geopolitical pact that kind of said the U.S. still has influence within this region and helps set policy. Uh, So that failure was actually, in my opinion, a a positive for China, because then it opened doors. Darn right it was. (laughs) Yeah, the the members of people who were part of the TPP had to look at China differently and start saying, well, maybe we should be dealing with China more directly. Maybe China has greater influence in this region than they otherwise would have had. 
Well, Mike, I will say thank you very much. We'll have to have you back soon. Uh, you've nailed it so far in terms of the unlikelihood of a deal when things were, when people were very hopeful before. And now you're saying uh, there might be, I don't know if it's fair to call it a deal, some sort ceasefire. of ceasefire uh, stopping with the escalation. Mike McDonough, Chief Economist for Financial Products at Bloomberg LP, uh, weighing in with great insight. I like avocado toast and I love drinking water with a slice of lemon in it. We are very lucky to be speaking with the biggest U.S. lemon and avocado grower, Limonera, uh, Harold Edwards, the chief executive officer of the company, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Harold, thank you so much for being here. I want to start uh, with some of the weather fluctuations that we saw this year that affected your company, especially on this climate change day uh, with resulting in very big lemons and poultry avocado uh, harvesting. Can you just give us a sense of where we are in terms of weather disruptions and how that's affected your business? I'm happy to. Thank you for having me today. So um, last July, a year ago, we had a week of temperatures over 100 degrees. In fact, in some areas of coastal California, it was 115 degrees for a long period of time. And that was right during the bloom and set period for our avocados. And the vast majority of them, approximately 80% of what was hanging on the tree fell to the ground and became unmarketable. So that was the first weather phenomena to hit us. And then if you fast forward uh, and uh, think back to the last seven years that California has been enduring a, a sustained drought, and last year was a godsend year for us, we had triple the amount of rainfall that we normally have. I think we had 35 inches of rain last year. And so it was te technically a great thing, except it prevented us and everybody in the, in the coastal industry of citrus production from being able to get in to harvest our citrus. So by the time we were actually able to get our citrus harvested, in this case, our lemons, everything had grown to be of a very large size. And what's normally eight sizes and three different grades of what we sell fresh, we had three sizes. And the market is only so big. If you think about a gigantic lemon floating in your iced tea, it doesn't work. <laughs> so Harold, it's interesting. One of the things I know that your industry, when I think about it, you're in Southern California, the Santa Clara Valley, beautiful, just in Southern California, some of the greatest citrus growing uh, regions of the world, but you depend upon migrant labor. Talk to us about the immigration policies and discussions that are happening in the country right now and how it's impacting your business and, and your region of the country. Sure. Having, having a captive workforce is, is absolutely essential for us as it relates to our harvest labor, our pruning labor, just our, our labor in general. Uh, so the company just celebrated its 126th year of operation. We've been a long, around a long time. I haven't been there the whole time, but I've been there part of it. And uh, having access to a captive workforce has been critical. Uh, we've invested into our workforce. We provide housing. We educate our employees. So we, we really try to uh, minimize our own workforce attrition. That being said, the rhetoric that's going on with uh, migrant labor has made it extremely difficult to keep some of the outsourced labor as it relates to harvesting and pruning around. And so even just the rhetoric of the discussion of building the wall and uh, the relations between the United States and Mexico, most of our, most of our workforce comes from Mexico. 
uh, has been really challenging to keep that labor um, accessible to us. So here's here's what I don't totally understand. We've got the uh, tariff issues and the trade talks and the built the wall issues uh, with migrant labor kind of coming under attack in the political sphere. You have weather disruptions causing some problems in terms of harvesting, uh, whether it be avocados or, or big lemons. Um, why are the prices not higher? So we're very fortunate globally to have other sources of fresh produce, and in this case, fresh citrus and avocados. Today, uh, the United States consumes about 3 billion pounds of avocados every year. 90% of that comes from Mexico. And Mexico produces about 3 billion pounds of avocados. And Peru now produces almost a billion pounds of avocados. So between Peru, Mexico, and Chile, you've got more than enough to satisfy this insatiable demand almost that we experience here in the United States. The same holds true with fresh citrus and lemons. Uh, Today, our business, we source lemons in Mexico and we actually produce and pack and ship out of Chile, Argentina, and South Africa. But more to have counter seasonality uh, uh, combined and complemented by our California and Arizona production. Interesting. Now, I know you, uh, the business is a global business. Real quickly, how are you doing with China? I'm, I'm guessing Chinese like their lemons. They like their avocados, I'm guessing. Um, how do you get product into China? Yeah, so the, the Chinese market is, is, just has massive potential. And if you go break it down by cities and, and, and areas of consumption, burgeoning middle classes and prosperity is more people are eating out every day and more people are shopping in supermarkets every day. And so the opportunity for consumption and that demand growth as it relates to citrus and avocados is, is huge. The, uh, the dynamic trade policy and, and changes makes it really difficult to shift or ship directly into many of those markets. One thing that we've noticed historically is that China, their inconsistent trade policy with the United States, whether the markets are open or closed, the total amount of consumption is growing at north of 12% annually. But when that market gets a big tariff or a duty yep. put on it, usually that fruit diverts through Hong Kong and then somehow miraculously <laughs> finds its way into the markets that um, ultimately creates higher pricing for the Chinese consumers. Okay, but you're still going to need your product there. Harold Edwards, thank you so much for joining us as always. Harold's the CEO of Limonera, uh, based in Ventura County, uh, in uh, I'm sorry, in California. So a very interesting story on the lemon business, the avocado business, and just the global agricultural business um you know it's just amazing the consumption going up for avocados i think we know why uh lisa bramos is contributing to that i, am I sure. was in chile when i developed the habit okay. so Federal Reserve has taken crisis-era actions this week to try to regain some sort of calm in the repo market. The fourth day, uh, they've added uh, liquidity to the overnight repo markets. The question is, will this happen again? And what will the Federal Reserve do on an ongoing basis to make sure uh, that there is a little more stability uh, in these basic fundamental markets for financial worlds? Joining us now is Dr. Bob Eisenbeis, Vice Chair and Chief monetary economist at Cumberland Advisors. He was formerly the executive vice president and director of research at the Atlanta Fed. Uh, Bob, thank you so much for joining us. First of all, do you think that we are going to see uh, additional rounds of disruption in the repo markets going forward like the ones that we saw this week? Well, that's going to be hard to determine because uh, even 
as of now, there's not a lot of consensus as to what the cause of the pressures were. And to really get to the nub of it, you have to understand a little bit in terms of how this market was set up. And it was designed to provide a source of liquidity to banks, GSEs, money market funds, and primary dealers. Banks and GSEs really haven't been players in this market at all, and it's mainly the primary dealers. And my understanding was that the primary dealers were experiencing a, uh, a squeeze. Now, the primary dealers are the security are securities firms, broker-dealers, uh, some of which are affiliated with commercial banks, but they cannot tap commercial bank funds. So they have large portfolios of securities that they have to finance, and typically they were financing them through uh, overnight repos with money market funds. But uh, a couple things happened uh, this past week. One was this about a $70 billion uh, tax uh, draw that required uh, money market funds to liquidate uh, securities. At the same time, the Treasury issued about $50 billion worth of securities that had to be financed. All this had to be financed through the repo market, basically, by the primary dealers, and they were squeezed. And so this is how what the Fed did. They're, the Fed is really the only option in this particular case. The security affiliates, even though they may have been associated with a commercial bank, can't really borrow from the commercial banks, and the banks are unwilling to lend to the primary dealers of other banks. So the Fed is really the only uh, source here. And what really needs to be done is the Fed has to decide what this facility is going to be and who should have access to, essentially, uh, Fed resources. And uh, the, the real mystery is what the cause of the problem was, and people are just guessing at this point. I'm pretty sure the people with right. the New York Fed know, but uh, that's another problem. that they, they just haven't been forthcoming in telling us what they do know. Right. So that's kind of where I wanted to go, Bob. I mean, there's some uh, market participants that are saying, you know, the Fed kind of got caught off guard here and kind of didn't really have it, the finger on the pulse of this part of the market. Is that something you ascribe to? No, I don't think so. Uh, they have daily uh, interactions with all these firms and uh, they should have been. I mean, it was well known about this tax day, for example, and uh, the Fed, uh, does announce, uh, or the, excuse me, the Treasury does announce what its uh, securities dealings are going to be. So uh, I'm surprised at, at this, to be honest with you. All right. So you're surprised at this, and there is a lot of talk that the Federal Reserve is going to probably increase its balance sheet, not in a quantitative easing type of manner, but in some kind of way to make sure that there is just enough liquid assets there to prevent this from happening going forward. I want to sort of put that aside for a minute because this whole repo action totally overshadowed the actual Fed meeting that we got and the rate cut that we got this week. And I'm just wondering uh, to take stock of what happened with uh, Fed Chair Powell and what you're expecting going forward. How many times do you think the Fed's going to cut rates uh, in additional rounds this year? Well, if you look at the dot chart in particular, um, there's at most a group of seven people who think there should be one more cut. There's 10 people who don't think there should be either a move or perhaps even an increase. So uh, at most, I think at this juncture, you're going to, if, if the present voting structure continues, we might get one more uh, rate 
uh, cut. But I would be quite surprised at that, and I think uh, it's going to be really dependent on, uh, among other things, what the uh, third quarter uh, GDP number looks like. And as some of the discussions you've already had today suggest that certain parts of the economy are doing pretty well, except for the investment side of things. And, uh, of course, that's, I think, really related. The slowdown there is more related to uncertainty about trade. And we saw another switch in what policy on trade was going to be today in terms of exemption of certain goods and so on by both the Chinese and the United States. So there's this constant, I don't know. And if you're a businessman, uh, at this point, the prudent thing is probably just to sit on your hands for a bit. But I want to go back to the point you made that you wanted to set aside the fact that the Fed might increase the size of its balance sheet. If, in fact, the primary dealers are the ones who are having problems, increasing the size of the balance sheet and injecting in the reserves into the system is not going to necessarily provide the funds to those particular institutions at all. So, to me, the real issue has to do with how do they change and what do they do with the structure of that repo market, and it's unrelated to the size of the Fed's balance Okay, sheet. so what do you think they should do? Well, I think I mean, one of the arguments is that they should essentially allow the primary dealers to have uh, accounts at the Fed, which would give them access to the discount window, which would solve the problem. Uh, and, of course, the Fed could also do some other things. Uh, I firmly have argued for a long time they should be buying and selling Fed funds uh, at the uh, desired rate on a continuing basis, not just one time a day. Uh, that would solve a lot of problems. Dr. Robert Eisenbeis, thank you so much. Dr. Eisenbeis is Vice Chairman and Chief Monetary Economist at Cumberland Advisors, joining us on the phone from Sarasota, Florida. All right, Paul, I'm going to tell you a little story from last night. Uh, let's do it. All right. So last night, my 10-year-old son comes to me and he says, Mommy, tomorrow... I'm going to walk out of school. And I said, okay, uh, where, do you, where do you plan to go? He's like, I'm going to this park. I'm going to this park. I've made signs. We're going in a group. But people in charge don't understand that they're wrecking our earth and we need to go fix it. Ah. Um, so he's being taking part in all of the climate change uh, protests, et cetera. And this, I then this got- This is a global thing. This is a global okay. thing, okay. and I actually am pretty uh, negligent in that I was not as aware of it as I probably should be. So to get a little bit more on exactly what this is, because I'm curious what I'm sort of allowing my son to throw himself <laughs> out into, uh, Eric Rostin joining us here. He's a sustainability editor for Bloomberg News. Eric, what are these protests that are going on all over the world today? It's quite a remarkable story, actually. There are many, many thousands of people protesting the lack of global action on climate change uh, in major cities around the world. And they were really sparked into this by one 16-year-old Swedish uh, girl who in the last couple of years has through, uh, you know, an unusual uh, succession of events become a global spokesperson for the urgency of the climate crisis. Uh, they, uh, this coincides with major UN events next week on the topic. So again, the, 
this rally, again, I've seen some amazing video from Australia and from Berlin and it's just tens of thousands of people, maybe more in all these cities. What, what's kind of the objective here? Is it just to raise awareness or are they the, asking for certain concrete things to be done? They're not, okay. I think. Uh, I think it would be uh, a remarkable feat in the history of humanity if that many people agreed on anything. Uh, <laughs> to the extent they do agree on something, it's that this topic needs more attention than it does from people in power. A number of things have crystallized in the last year or two that have really brought this into the public uh, to the public attention in a way it never has before. Uh, probably the most powerful thing are just these very strange, very destructive, massive, unusual events. The hurricanes, the droughts, the flooding, that's uh, hard to miss. Uh, another thing is the science, which basically hasn't changed for 30 or 40 years, has been getting increasingly higher pitched, including in October, a, a pretty dramatic report from the main UN uh, authoritative climate body that says, look, this is, by 2050, we have to have net zero greenhouse gas emissions. And by 2030, we have to slice in half what we're putting out into the atmosphere now. And, and we got that uh, with a pledge to eliminate uh, carbon uh, emissions out of the EU, out of Germany, uh, with Angela Merkel making a pledge this morning. Uh, in the meantime, there's a very real implication for a lot of businesses, whether it comes to carbon taxes, whether it comes to different regulations, or whether it comes to just uh, public relations issues and how people uh, perceive different companies. There was a report out showing that Amazon.com's emissions are bigger than some of its retail rivals, although uh, they did trail Walmart. Can you talk a little bit about that? Amazon did really change the conversation uh, yesterday uh, that uh, climate activists certainly have about them. Uh, Amazon has not really participated really over the last 15 years in any of the increasingly common uh, voluntary disclosure mechanisms that companies have been participating in uh, where they reveal their their climate emissions for investors. Uh, even over the past year, it's been getting more and more intense for Amazon. As they, they, the spring, there was an employee uh, walkout, uh, people protesting the lack of attention to uh, climate issues. Uh, and yesterday, uh, after never having published their carbon number before, uh, they issued a a quite uh, detailed and uh, very sort of strategic uh, policy for getting on top of all of their direct and indirect emissions over the next two decades. So, Eric, can these global, you know, emission goals for 2030 to 2015 that the UN put out, are they reasonably achievable if the U.S. does not play a leading role? Because it appears that this administration is not as big a supporter of sustainability as perhaps other parts of the world. That's fair. <laughs> uh, one thing that I think is underplayed a lot, because it's, it's fuzzy and it's difficult to write about, is that leadership really matters. And leadership catalyzes change on this topic in a way uh, that's different. And you can look to uh, the 2014 bilateral agreement between the U.S. and China over uh, climate goals that really set in motion momentum that became a year later the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. Uh, and 
that international collaboration is really powerful. There's, uh, you know, uh, it's very difficult to get everybody to commit. Yep. Hard to get everybody to jump in the water at the same time if if uh, there's fear that not everybody's going to. Right. Right. Yeah. So a long term story here. Eric Rostin, thanks so much for joining us. Eric's a sustainability editor for Bloomberg News, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, talking about uh, the world climate rally that is taking place around the globe uh, as we speak uh, in, uh, in major cities. I've seen, just, again, just some amazing video uh, from major rallies in major cities around the world. So people really getting behind this issue. The question is, to what extent will the U.S. and corporate America Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.